Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with my interview with the brilliant Jonathan Rausch, I want to tell you about Spiked Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks. From now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spiked Supporters account. If you enjoyed my recent podcast with Rod Little, it's worth bearing in mind that we recorded that live via Zoom with an audience that included many Spike supporters. Spike supporters got to watch that live recording for free, and they will get access to future live events for free as well. That is just one of the perks when you sign up to be a Spike supporter. This is all our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us. We're really grateful for that. And if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and set up your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Thank you all from everyone at Spiked. And now on with the show. Free speech is really the only safe place for minorities. I'm a homosexual American born in 1960. I grew up in a world where it was illegal to be gay, where you could be arrested for it. What we had was the power of speech and ideas. We were right that we were not sick, we were not dangerous, we were not subversive. That movement succeeded. I am married today to a man in the United States entirely because of free speech. What I try to put across is, is look, you are not helping minorities by trying to protect us from harmful ideas. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Jonathan Rausch. Jonathan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. and a writer for The Atlantic. He has written widely on politics, culture, freedom of speech, and gay rights. In 2005, he won America's National Magazine Award for column writing. He is the author of numerous books, including the incredibly influential Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, and Gay Marriage, Why It Is Good for Gays, Good for Straits, and Good for America. His latest book is The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth. Okay, I want to start off by asking you about the title of your new book, The Constitution of Knowledge. And you describe this constitution of knowledge as a a social system for turning disagreement into truth. So to kick us off, could you just give us a bit more of a definition of what you mean by that social system and how you see it working? Every society, whether a small tribe or a large country, or even internationally, needs some way to figure out what's true and what's false, at least for public matters, you know, not necessarily for every aspect of our of our private lives. And that turns out to be extremely hard to do uh, because it turns out humans are actually, you know, we're good at answering questions that give us immediate feedback and are vital to our survival. Like, is that a breeze in the bush or is that a tiger or where is the next tribe camped? 
But we're really quite bad at abstract questions like, you know, how old is the universe? Where does disease come? Which God should we worship? And usually we go out and look for information that confirms our biases. And then we believe things that enhance our status in the group. And then we persuade others and we ally with others. And when we form sects and we solve disagreements when they occur by exiling or executing dissenters, uh, we break into sects, we go to wars. And essentially, we wind up with 200,000 years of ignorance and warfare and oppression, which is most of human history. So Mm. about 300 years ago, contemporaneously with the development of, of constitutional republicanism, some people come along and say there must be a better way to do this. And they self consciously set out to replace rulers with rules. And they say, instead of having people will believe in or holy books or oracles, we're going to set up a a society that's going to follow a bunch of rules for how you decide what's true. And those rules and the institutions that embed them, uh, that's today, that's science and research, journalism, government, and law. And they make up the constitution of knowledge. They practice the constitution of knowledge. We rely on them to tell us what's true, what's not true to find truth and to do that in a peaceful, productive way. Okay, I want to come on shortly to the question of um, what happens when that social system that you've just described very well, what happens when, when that stops working or when there are problems with it, which there are, there have been various problems with it in, in recent years. Uh, but first, I want to ask you about the juxtaposition you make between what you describe as the constitution of knowledge, this social system through which we work out what is true and work out what we think, the way in which you contrast that to a certain extent with the marketplace of ideas. And the marketplace of ideas will be a very familiar term to anyone who's ever been involved in, a, in an online debate or ever spoken to a libertarian or, or, or in some cases a classical liberal. Uh, this idea that there's a bit of a free-for-all and it's better to have this free-for-all than it is to have censorship. So could you just Tell us why you think there are problems with the idea of the marketplace of ideas and why you think that doesn't quite cut it when it comes to finding and defending truth. If you ask an American today, and I would guess probably a Brit as well, where knowledge comes from in a free society, they'll say the marketplace of ideas. And it's it's a wonderful metaphor. I've used it myself. Mm. But it kind of leaves out the most important part of the equation and thus leaves us exposed, vulnerable, unprepared for the kinds of epistemic warfare we're facing now. So when I go to talk to undergraduates and use the marketplace of ideas metaphor, they ask a question, which is, so how do you know the better ideas will prevail in the marketplace? I mean, crap ideas might turn out to be the most popular. And that's actually a very profound objection. Because it turns out that if you just leave individuals Mm. to their own devices, just in an unstructured environment, to put ideas out there and find ideas and decide what's true, they do a terrible job. They gravitate toward their friends. They gravitate towards conspiracy theories that explain the world. They gravitate toward narratives of which they're the hero. Uh, They collect, even subconsciously, we, we do this without even realizing it, they collect information that confirms their biases instead of disconfirming them. Um, and pretty soon you go down a rabbit hole of the kind I described earlier, and that's what we see online. So I kind of use the marketplace of ideas idea in my first book, Kindly Inquisitors, but then I realized mm. as we saw the, the outbreak of the current epistemic chaos and information warfare, 
I, I realized I'd left out the most important part, which is like describing a transportation system by saying, everyone, get in your cars and drive, leaving out the roads, the traffic signals, the rules of the road, the driver education, the law enforcement, the culture around it. You've got to have all that. You've got to have structure. You've got to force people or, or, or in, actually, no, you've got to incentivize people to present their ideas in ways that others can and will scrutinize, criticize, compare. And then you've got to incentivize those other people to do that fairly and accurately and consistently. And that takes a ton of rules and structures. That's the constitution of knowledge. That's the stuff that gets broken and attacked. And that's like peer review, newsrooms, publications in academia, administrative law, the courts with their protocols for filing briefs and hearing testimony. All of that stuff is doing the actual work of sorting through all of the contending beliefs and figuring out what's better and what's worse. And that's the stuff we need to understand and defend. So uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. I want to, if we look at the journey you've been on from the kindly inquisitors to this new book, The Constitution of Knowledge, and you describe in this new book that this is a continuation and a development of the ideas that you put forward in The Kindly Inquisitors, and although from a different angle, so looking at it from a different perspective. But would it be fair to say that an element of pessimism has kind of snuck into your commentary on on these issues. I mean, you describe yourself in the constitution of knowledge as a guarded optimist. So you're pretty optimistic about public life, generally speaking. But some might think that the shifting from an emphasis on the marketplace of ideas with its unpredictability and its chaos, but also its fundamental sense of trust in, um, ordinary people to engage in a marketplace as they see fit. The shift from that to emphasizing rules and structures and authoritative bodies, which if they do their job properly can help us find the truth. Do you think part of that might have been, uh, it might be driven by a kind of pessimism that has come uh, come about as a result of, for example, Trump and uh, the war of disinformation and the rise of trolling and all those other things that you described very well in the book. Is that a pessimistic shift or, or would you push back against that idea? Yeah, Brendan, that is, it's a definite change, though I would describe it not as a shift toward pessimism, but a shift toward worry. I really had no idea five years ago or six years ago of the power of information warfare, what I call actually epistemic warfare, because it's it's making war on the system that we rely on and, and trust and use to distinguish collectively between truth and falsehood. I had no idea of the power of mm-hmm. those tools. And I didn't know that when I was writing Kindly Inquisitors. Um, I know it now. And the most dramatic way I know it and the most frightening way in the United States is the rise of Donald Trump, his MAGA movement, and now the Republican Party as an institutional organ of propaganda. What they have done is adapted and repurposed Russian-style information warfare tactics and weaponized and used those against the American public in using techniques like what's been called the fire hose of falsehood. That's where you put out so many blatant lies, half-truths, conspiracy theories, and exaggeration that the media can't keep up 
they throw up their hands every time they knock down one lie. There are 10 or 100 more. Um, and the public becomes cynical and disoriented, doesn't know who to trust. Well, when I really started to realize the power of these tools was during Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign. PolitiFact looked at the statements that had been made by both candidates that year, and Hillary Clinton's statements were mostly or entirely false 25% of the time. That's, of course, too high. We don't like that. But that means 75% of what she said when she opened her mouth was basically true. Donald Trump, 70, 70% of what he said was mostly or entirely false. In other words, when he opened his mouth, you could probably count on him for using disinformation. And a lot of it is in just blatant, obviously refutable ways. The first thing he does as president, the very first thing is lie about the mm. size of the crowd at his inauguration and lie about whether it rained at his inauguration. These are not ordinary lies to persuade people. This is Russian-style disinformation designed to confuse people and to show you just don't care about truth and neither should anyone else. This continues through his presidency. It builds up in his last year into the Stop the Steal campaign, which he begins in April of 2020 with an attack on mail-in voting. And we all scratch our heads. You know, I think, well, why would he do that? Lots of Republicans are elderly and we've got a, we've got a pandemic. So, you know, why would you attack mail-in voting? Well, it wasn't to influence the election. It was to influence the post-election to organize and signal a disinformation network that if he lost, he was going to mount a massive disinformation campaign, an unprecedented disinformation campaign. And that is what he has done. He and they have now convinced 70% of Republicans that Donald Trump is the rightful winner of the election. They've now convinced uh, Republicans by a plurality that Joe Biden not Donald Trump, is the leader and instigator of the forces that, that mob the Capitol, that storm the Capitol, and on and on and on. So we have not seen a problem like this, like this in America before, Brendan, the, the weaponization of these tactics on this scale by domestic actors. It's breathtaking. And yes, I'm very alarmed about it, in case mm. you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. Right, let's let's dig down a little bit more into the the social system for turning disagreement into truth, the constitution of knowledge, which is, in your view, is essential. And something like Trump, a phenomenon like Trump, and the misinformation of his presidency demonstrates just how essential that social system is. But I want to talk about some of the other ways in which you think it's being undermined. This this system for filtering out false information and for assisting us in, in reaching something approaching truth and approaching knowledge. So obviously there was the Trump administration, but in the book you outline other ways in which uh, this constitution is coming under attack. And I just want to dig into a few of those with you. One is the idea of tribal truth. So the idea that we have a tendency to attach ourselves to things that feel true to us because of the circles we move in, because of the views we already hold. And I'm sure that will feel right to many people. And I wanted to ask you just if you could say a bit more about that in particular and, and the role that you think the internet has played in, in exacerbating that phenomenon. But also, I just want to ask you, do, do you think that this tendency for, towards tribal truth is as much a problem 
on on the right as it is on the left. I mean, we will be familiar with uh, left groupthink, for example, in relation to the campus controversies and cancel culture, which I want to ask you about in a moment. But this phenomenon is as pronounced on the right as well today, isn't it? Yes, it's a human phenomenon. It's not an ideological phenomenon. It's actually mm. how we're set up, how our brains are set up is to keep ourselves in good standing with our group and our tribe and to try to harmonize our beliefs with our group. There's a famous experiment. It was done in the early 50s. It's been replicated many times since. You put eight people in a room and you give them an obvious puzzle, so obvious that that any rational person immediately sees that the right answer is, let's say, B. It's just clear. But of the eight people in that room, one is the experimental subject, and the other seven are actors, and the other seven actors all pick the same wrong answer. They say the answer is A. Well, what happens? The eighth person in the room, a third of the time, will actually also pick the wrong answer, despite the clear evidence of their own eyes. And sometimes they'll say, well, I was just going along with the group to conform because I didn't want to seem weird. But other times they'll say, well, I really wasn't sure because maybe they were seeing things I wasn't seeing. Maybe it was a, a visual trick, which, which I didn't get. And they become uncertain. They internalize this. Lots of other experiments show that we actually think with our groups, that our, our groups and social harmonizing influences not just our beliefs, but actually literally what we perceive. And we don't even know that's going on. Mm. So the only way around that is a system that forces us to compare our beliefs with people who disagree with us, who have different viewpoints, who are not part of our tribes. And that's the constitution of knowledge. It says, you know, if you want to make new knowledge, you're going to have to propose it. And skeptics all over the world, often speaking different languages from different fields and totally different cultures, are going to have to look at it and be able to replicate your results or your legal brief will have to make sense to them. You'll have to show your work. If you're a journalist, any other mm. journalist can check your story, including journalists who are very different ideologically. So that's the way we fight biases. We pit them against other biases. That's how the U.S. Constitution works. It's also how the Constitution of Knowledge works. So then along comes the internet, and it says, well, disconfirmation is unpleasant. Some studies show people would rather go to the dentist and have root canal work than encounter political views that are different from their own. So why don't we just get rid of the encountering different political views part? Since we're selling attention and we want people to stay tuned to our network all the time, we'll tell them what they want to hear. We'll find out. We'll have sophisticated algorithms, which we'll see what they click on. We'll then feed them more of that. That'll make it very easy for them rarely or never to experience disconfirmation. In fact, it'll very quickly put them in touch with conspiracy theories that tell them they, they're heroes because they're part of a small group of, of worthies who understand how the world really is. So these mm -hmm. tools turn out to be very powerful for confirmation bias and for trolling and for going down epistemic rabbit holes. And a lot of the problem we have now is figuring out how to how to change, how to revise some of these platforms and the way they're designed so that we'll have less of this hostility to, to truth. 
Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. One of the things that grates against the constitution of knowledge is this something that's in all of us or, or the majority of us, which is a desire to look for things that sound true to us, which feel true according to the, the circles we move in and the things we already think. So there's that internal dynamic, but then also you obviously write about the external pressures on the constitution of knowledge. So there's the Trump phenomenon, um, there's the internet, which has been a great facilitator of public debate and global debate in many ways, but also has lots of these uh, problems of pressure on on the social system of, of truth-seeking. And then another external pressure that you write about in the book is the extraordinary pressure these days to conform to orthodoxy. So, for example, on campuses, and that culture has leaked out of campuses in many ways too, and the phenomenon of cancel culture. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, because that's the part of this book which echoes and develops very well the the some of the core ideas from the kindly inquisitors in relation to that extraordinary uh, disdain for dis- dissenting views that dis- disdain for awkward thinking or or alternative ways of thinking and that pressure that is put on people often with threats of cancellation to conform to what is seen as the acceptable idea. So do you think that's become a far larger problem than it was when you were writing The Kindly Inquisitors? And do you think it's now burst through uh, the walls of of campuses and become a phenomenon in everyday life? Yes, to both. It's always been a problem. Let let me just step back for just a moment Mm -hmm. and define a little more specifically Mm -hmm. what what I think we're talking about here. One of the big takeaways of this book that I think is kind of new to most people is that we should think of cancel culture, as it's now called, social coercion to silence, intimidate, deplatform, isolate, shame one's ideological adversaries. We should think of that. And we should also think of what Donald Trump and his followers are doing with firehose of falsehood, conspiracy bootstrapping, trolling, and the like. They're very different methods and they're used to different ends, but they have in common that they're both forms of information warfare which is to say they're, they're aiming to organize and manipulate the social and media environments for political gain, you know, to dominate or divide or disorient or demoralize the other side. They're all using these sophisticated cognitive tools to weaponize the kinds of cognitive flaws that we've been talking about. So one way to do that is to just basically flood the senses and the media environment with bullshit. But another way to do it is to use social coercion so that people begin to think that no one, no one agrees with me. Everyone says I'm wrong. Everyone online on Twitter, you know, hundreds of people are calling for my job. They're telling my friends, how dare you associate with such a person? They're, they're calling me racist. People will internalize that. It it turns out one consequence is immediate, which is that one side of the argument will just 
usually in that circumstance is shut up because it's just way too, too socially hazardous to speak out. But there's a more subtle result of what canceling can do, which is people, as we said earlier, people look to other people in their circles to figure out not only what's true or what's false, but what's okay to believe versus what's shameful. And they literally become ashamed and doubtful when what they see is an entire world of people disagreeing with them. Well, you see how this can be gamed. You can, you can create a false consensus because if you intimidate everyone who expresses a certain point of view, then that view is suppressed and more and more people think no one holds that view and they in turn shift their opinion to what is in fact a minority view. We see this on campuses all the time, which are communities where these tools can be used by stimulating investigation or bad, um, bad reports on, on professors teaching or by threatening someone saying, I've been microaggressed and traumatized. And now we increasingly see it off campus because it's so quick and easy now to organize campaigns to shame people in the online world. We now see people quite frequently get fired from their jobs because of online campaigns to, um, to intimidate them. So these are powerful tools and they're very hard to resist. They're quite sophisticated and we need to get smarter about dealing with them. I think one of the core problems with this, that phenomenon that you've just described is the silence and if one was being ungenerous, possibly even the cowardice of liberal voices or, or voices that you would expect to push back against that kind of culture and to defend the right of people to say things that are unusual or uncomfortable or, or, or different. And I, I want to ask you, uh, I want you just to trace, if you don't mind, a little bit of, of the journey we've been on as a, as a culture from the Rushdie affair in 1989, which of course informed um, the writing, your thinking in, in the Kindly Inquisitors, and the kind of culture we find today. So you've talked about the fact that there often seem to be mini Rushdie affairs all the time, where these kind of informal secular fatwas, if you like, are issued against people for having the wrong view about transgenderism or immigration or whatever else it might be. And do you think that the, the silence of liberals in relation to that kind of culture and the silence of liberals in relation to the Rushdie fair itself in many cases is, is part of the problem here and has allowed this phenomenon to grow and to assume the kind of power that it currently has in public life? Again, yes, that, that was beautifully stated, maybe better than I can state it, but at least I can elaborate. I wrote Kindly Inquisitors because of the Rushdie affair, because I was so mm. dismayed by the lack of a coherent response to what was going on there. As, as I hope most of your listeners will remember, novelist mm. named Salman Rushdie writes a novel called The Satanic Verses. And it's not a big book. It doesn't do all that well. So it's a very good book until a few months later when it rises to the awareness of Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran, who issues a death sentence against Rushdie for writing this blasphemous book, but also critically, a death sentence against anyone who helps Rushdie publish the book or in any other way helps Rushdie. So they're not only going after him, they're going after anyone associated with him and, and people around the world start getting killed. Like his Japanese translator was assassinated. His, um, I think it was his Swedish publisher, maybe it was Danish, was attacked and left for dead. Well, we didn't have the vocabulary at the time, Brendan, but in hindsight, that was the first modern cancellation. It proved you don't actually need social media 
to do this, to isolate people and threaten them with terrible consequences. And you also don't need to threaten them with assassination. You can instead threaten them with losing their jobs or their reputations or their friendships and professional associations. And that works just about as well, and it's much quicker. So then you fast forward to 2014, when a man named Brendan Eich is named CEO mm. of Mozilla Company. And somebody digs up the fact that six years prior, he had donated $1,000 to the California campaign against gay marriage. And an internet campaign starts saying this person shouldn't, shouldn't be employed. Um, and he's fired within days. And Mozilla issues what's now the de rigueur apology about being insensitive and they should never have, they should never have done that. So at the time, I and some other gay and non-gay friends of gay marriage wrote a public letter saying this should not be happening. We should not, people should not be losing right. their jobs because they disagree with us. Little did we know that we were seeing the transplantation of cancel culture from the the non-virtual world of Rushdie and the world of physical violence to the virtual world of social attacks. And little did we know that it would become so easy to weaponize so that by last summer, a socialist, very well-esteemed political analyst named David Shore tweets out a very accurate summary of an academic article. And because it says that violent protests actually have uh, the reverse impact, they backfire in public opinion. Some people on Twitter call for his, uh, they, they call him a racist and they go after his employer and he's fired the next day. And that's not a world we want to live in. 60% of Americans now say, according to polls, that they are reluctant to state their true political views for worry of social consequences. And okay. a third of Americans now say they're afraid of losing their job or job opportunities if they state their true political views. And one study found this is about four times the amount of chilling in the social environment that we had in the McCarthy era. Um, this is not a healthy mm. environment for learning, for knowledge, for freedom. Absolutely. I want to ask you a little bit about the aftermath also of the massacre at Charlie Hebdo in 2015, because I only have very vague memories of the Rushdie affair that you've just described. I was at school at the time, but then the Charlie Hebdo massacre is obviously burnt into my mind as it is into many other people's too. And there was a similar response to that, although almost, uh, it was like the po post rushdie moment, but on steroids. So you had this extraordinary situation where uh, a group of people were literally killed for the supposed speech crime of making fun of Muhammad and uh, making fun of Islam, as well, by the way, as making fun of all other religions and political figures and so on. Um, and what was, to me, what was most shocking, uh, the incident, of course, was uh, be beyond horrific, but also the response or the lack of response from some who you would expect to stand up for the right to freedom of speech. So various novelists, for example, criticized American Penn for, uh, for giving an award to Charlie Hebdo, a bravery award. Uh, lots of liberal commentators in the UK either said very little or they caveated their defense of Charlie Hebdo. So they said, of course, this is a horrible murder, but maybe you shouldn't have been publishing those things in the first place. And I, I think that really entrenched 
liberal cowardice as a, as a central feature of Western public life today and gave a further green light, if you like, to this notion that an individual's feeling of offence ought to trump someone else's right to express their views, however difficult or controversial their views might be. We do have the rise of a doctrine which, when I wrote Kindly Inquisitors, was coming into view, but is now much more developed. And one thing we could call it is emotional safetyism. And that's Mm. the notion that if you hurt me emotionally, that's the equivalent of hurting me physically. So offending me is a form of violence. You know, using, for example, people will now say that misgendering someone using the pronoun they don't prefer is violence. They don't say it's like violence. They say it is violence. Well, violence is a human rights violation. So that means that free speech is a human rights violation because the whole point of the Constitution of knowledge is to subject ideas to often quite aggressive, quite um, intense criticism, which is going to cause some emotional harms. We try to mitigate that all kinds of ways by requiring people attack arguments instead of reputations and by requiring that, you know, news articles and journal articles not begin with phrases that are, you know, personal attacks. I can't call you an ignorant slut, to quote Saturday Night Live. But still, this is often a painful process. So when people say, well, um, Salman Rushdie may have come under attack um, with physical violence, but he should have realized he was committing a kind of um, emotional violence against Muslims all over the world, and they shouldn't have to be subject to that, which was said at the time. They should realize this is not an act of compassion, though it may be well-motivated. It's a direct attack on our whole ability of our society to learn. And yeah, it's it has increased traction over the past few years. It's become institutionalized in a lot of institutions, including many universities, which now have you know rules and procedures against microaggressions. So if I criticize affirmative action, maybe, and say it backfires, uh, I could be investigated for that. And now increasingly, I think we're seeing it begin to move into newsrooms and employers. So this doctrine of emotional safety, that this is something we have a right to, this is fundamentally at odds with with free thought, free speech, and above all, development of knowledge. I think that's very well put. And and I think one of the problems of the, the times we live in is that when you treat words as a form of violence, then of course the logic is that you you license violence as a as a understandable response to words. And in some ways, the Charlie Hebdo massacre captured that. I, I've always thought of that attack as almost being the militant wing of political correctness, where you have this extreme form of offence taking in a country, by the way, France, in which. There are laws which regulate what you can say about religion and and so on. So it's not uh, particularly unusual that people would feel that they had a right not to be offended in that sense. But in relation to the emotional safetyism thing, which you uh, write about in the book, and it's uh, very well described in the book, I wanted to ask you what you think is the best way to challenge that kind of idea. So you have this idea that people believe they have the right to be cushioned against controversial thinking or anything that runs counter to their world worldview or which they feel bristles against their personal identity. You know, for so one word you often hear in in woke circles these days is the word erasure. So people feel erased by certain ideas. 
how do you think it's the the best way to counter emotional safetyism? My temptation when I speak on campuses is is just to tell people to pull their socks up and uh, be a man or be a woman and 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 get on with life. But that actually obviously doesn't work because this is a quite deeply ingrained culture. How how best do you think you could convince young people in particular that the the vagaries of um, everyday, unpredictable public debate are preferable to the deadening comfort of the uh, emotional safetyism. What you say is interesting, Brendan, because I've experienced the same thing. I, I talk on campuses and something that does not work very often is quoting John Stuart Mill or talking <laughs> about the marketplace of ideas or just praising free speech, which I, I do all the time as a mm. fundamental human right, as necessary for human flourishing. But that doesn't seem to get through in the ways that it did for my generation. And a big reason for that seems to be the idea that protecting people, but especially historically marginalized or discriminated minorities, is a way of helping those minorities and making the world yeah. a more just place. And so what I found that actually is very helpful, I'm a homosexual American born in 1960. I grew up in a world where it was illegal to be gay, where you could be arrested for it, where the police would entrap you in order to um, give you a criminal record. That would get you fired from your job the next day and end many of your social relationships. We knew, gay people knew all about canceling long before it became fashionable. Mm. We were denounced in the pulpits as a stench in God's nostrils, bringing divine wrath on America. We were claimed to be a threat to our national security and drummed out of the government where we, it was illegal to serve in the military or in government jobs. We were defined as mentally ill, literally, until 1973. Shock therapy was sometimes used. Uh, Alan Turing, arguably the this person mm. who did more than any other single human to win World War II, was gay and was subjected to, under, under the coercion of law, to horrible procedure called chemical castration because he was gay. And I grew up in that world. And I, I tell students about that. And I tell them, what do you think changed that? Was it hate speech laws? No. First of all, they're unconstitutional in America. But second, if they had existed, they would have been used against us because we were supposedly the haters. We hated children. We hated our country. We were subversive. Well, was it money? Was it organization? Was it votes? We had none of those things. We were the ultimate pariah minority. I tell them what we had was the power of speech and ideas. We were right that we were not sick. We were not dangerous. We were not subversive. And then I walked them through the story. Frank Kameny, the greatest gay civil rights leader in America. Most people haven't heard of him. It's kind of disgraceful, but, but there you are. How the Supreme Court in 1958 gave, gave gay people our voice by saying the government could not censor our publications. How Kameny and others used that to build the case for gay equality. Uh, this happened well before Stonewall and then accelerated after. I talked to them a, a little bit about the African-American civil rights movement in which Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, um, Mandela, many others all said what John Lewis said, which is without freedom of speech and the right to dissent, civil rights movement would have been a bird without wings, is how he put it. I acquaint them with the fact that, that protecting minorities is condescending to us. 
I remind them that the reason, I, sh- I should say the justification given for slavery was that blacks were too childlike and infirm of mind uh, to live on their own, and that women were oppressed on grounds that they were the weaker sex. And gay people, what are the um, what are the slurs against us? They focus on weakness, you know, limp wrists, pansies, sissies. We're weak. We can't mm-hmm. defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well, we bloody well can defend ourselves, and we bloody well should. And it worked for us. And we did that by comparing our good ideas with their bad ideas and substituting love for hate and showing that we were not dangerous. In fact, that we, that we were anything but that. And that was, that movement succeeded. I am married today to a man in the United States entirely because of free speech. So what I try to put across is, is look, you are not helping minorities by trying to protect us from harmful ideas. Free speech is, really the only safe place for minorities. And that really makes them think because they don't know those stories. Yes, that's excellently put. And it actually uh, segues very nicely into my next question, and it possibly answers my next question. But there are uh, aspects of your book, The Constitution of Knowledge, which sound counterintuitive, or I'm sure they would sound counterintuitive to, to many people. So you argue, for example, that the idea that bigoted, obnoxious, horrible ideas should not only be tolerated, but protected is is one of the great counterintuitive principles of, of human society. But then you also argue, and this I think will, uh, lots of younger people in particular, but uh, more broadly censorious people will find this quite confronting. You argue that the idea that minority groups in particular need the protections of censorship, they need protections from offence and protections from so-called erasure, you say that that's a, a very dangerous idea and that actually it can be very invigorating and empowering to confront the people who hate you and to use your freedom of speech to argue against them. So in relation to that idea, is this is this the idea that sunlight is the best disinfectant? It's the best way of chasing out obnoxious ideas? Or is there something more to it, which is that it's through the act of using your speech and defending your existence and your rights that you actually become, through that process, a freer individual and arrive at this kind of society that you've just described? Well, you just put that so well, I, I don't know that I could possibly improve on it. But the the sunlight metaphor, like the marketplace metaphor, it's kind of fine as far as it goes, but it's too passive. Mm. The Mm. notion that if we just allow free speech to reign and we don't really do anything to defend it and we don't really have a structure that we can defend, you know, institutions and and norms that that keep those those structures in place, you know, that show us how to behave and that require us to behave in certain ways. Then we get too passive and we just assume if we sit around, everything will be fine. But that leads all too easily into the assumption that, well, then I shouldn't be prodded to hear things that I disagree with. I should just live in my comfort zone all the time. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Well, the constitution of knowledge imposes certain burdens on this. And, and those include, no, you need to actively go out and try to figure out how you might be wrong. You need to go look at these ideas that may cause you offense or grief and figure out, so where is that idea coming from? I may, a lot of conservatives in the US now have a, a thing about critical race theory. Well, in order to refute it, you need to understand it and you need to listen mm-hmm. to the people who are saying it. And then you need to, if, if it's wrong and if you're correct that it's wrong, you need to make that case. 
by simply walling yourself off from it or making it illegal or saying you have a right not to be offended by it, you weaken yourself. You deprive the community of the arguments that need to be made. And in fact, you allow the errors that should be spotted to continue. So I, I emphasize to people, it's not just passive sunshine. You have to actively engage with these ideas, especially when they make you uncomfortable. Spiked is publishing more than ever. Articles, interviews, book reviews, long reads, podcasts. Every week, Spiked is packed with brilliant content on the big issues and big themes of our time. And now there's a really simple way for you to keep yourself in the loop on everything that we publish by signing up to our daily newsletter. In the daily newsletter, you will receive a roundup of everything we publish that day, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. What's not to like? So stay on top of everything Spike produces by signing up for our daily newsletter today. Just go to www.spiked-online.com slash newsletters. I couldn't agree more on the critical race theory issue, and I'm uh, uh, I'm now as uh, equally as shocked by the demands that critical race theory has to be chased out of public life and silenced as I am by some of the ideas underpinning critical race theory itself. And it's a shame to see some conservatives playing that same game of cancellation or or censure. Um, But I want to, you just mentioned there what the constitution of knowledge requires us to do, or at least asks us to do. So you put it very well in the book as well. You say that this social system of of freedom and truth-seeking, it asks us to mistrust our senses, to question our sacred beliefs, and to relinquish the comforts of certitude. So it, it asks quite a lot of us, uh, but the, the the benefits are potentially enormous, which is we become more knowledgeable and society becomes a more truthful place. But I want to ask you a couple of questions about what happens when the social system, the constitution of knowledge starts to become a bit creaky. So um, you, you talk about some of the institutions that are involved in the constitution of knowledge, for example, journalism and the press Uh, but there are as we know there are very large problems in the media at the moment um there is there's been almost a woke colonization of some newspapers and some media outlets and i think controversies at the new york times for example have demonstrated that a newspaper even a newspaper like that could potentially be losing its liberal instincts and then of course if you look at the role that um social media oligarchs play uh, in relation to their self-conscious filtering out of what they consider to be untrue. I'm thinking most obviously of of the lab leak theory in relation to COVID-19, the idea that it leaked from a, a laboratory in Wuhan, which remains very much just a theory, it has to be said. But it was initially treated by the social media giants as a conspiracy theory, unutterable. You could potentially be banned even for raising it. And now they've slightly changed their minds and said, "Okay, maybe you can talk about it. Do do you think there are parts of that social system which are, are failing in their duty to uphold the kind of inquisitiveness and freedom that is necessary for knowledge to flourish? Well, there always are, aren't there? You know, the mm-hmm. the point you just made is so important, and it's one of the reasons that the notion of a kind of passive marketplace of ideas where truth just spontaneously emerges is so misleading, because the constitution of knowledge does require us to do things, things that we don't necessarily enjoy, submit our ideas to 
critical, skeptical, sometimes hostile checking, uh, challenge our views, assume that we're wrong, um, go through years of credentialing in order to join some of these debates in a constructive way and, and so forth. And it's hard for us to do these things. And it's hard to do them well. It's a constant challenge in a news environment to make sure that you check your facts, that you're not premature, but you also don't want to be late with the story. So you have to rely on editors and fact checkers. You have to ask the right questions at the right time. You, you, then you're going to subject yourself to competitors. And these things are hard. And on any given day, a lot of us fail to live up to them. And yes, we are seeing versions of that in journalism right now. We always have, actually, because these rules are hard. You yeah. know, they'll always yeah. be hard. They ask us to be kind of, in some ways, r- rise above our human cognitive equipment. Um, but you've mentioned a problem, which is the tender rush to, to judgment. That's a human problem, but it did operate, apparently, in the case of Wuhan Lab. I would also, though, push back a little bit, Brendan, because Hmm. I actually see that story as a success story, and, and here's why. Uh, yes, too many journalists were too quick to dismiss the lab leak hypothesis, but at the time they were reflecting what science was telling them, and they were reflecting a completely justified skepticism of Donald Trump. This wasn't political prejudice. 70% of what he said during the campaign was, in fact, mostly or entirely false. Um, so we had every reason to assume that if he was promoting the Wuhan lab theory as part of his case that China was behind behind COVID-19 for political gain, we in the media were right to assume he was lying to us. He probably was. So we were reflecting what scientists seemed to be saying, which is it was very unlikely and, and skepticism to Trump. But then it starts to come out that maybe there was something in the theory. Well, why is that? It's because some some dogged journalists at places, mainstream media, like the Wall Street Journal mm. and New York Times, stayed on the story and said, wait a minute, there's more evidence here. Maybe we were too hasty. So they resurfaced the story in May of 2021. And then the next thing that happens is a, a veritable fiesta of media self-criticism. How do we get this so wrong? And then you see tons of stories, postmortems, walking through what every outlet reported and when and how did how did people make the mistake of of switching from the conspiracy theory that this was deliberately cooked up in a lab was wrong to saying it's also a conspiracy theory that it may have leaked unintentionally from a lab. That was a mistake. So what we're seeing now is precisely what other systems outside the Constitution of knowledge don't have, which is error correction. Of course, humans make mistakes. Of course, we engage in groupthink. Of course, we don't examine our biases. The miracle is that we ever do go outside of groupthink, that we ever do disconfirm our biases. And the way we do that is by subjecting ourselves to accountability when we make mistakes. And we're seeing that now. So actually, to me, this is a success story. I I wish we hadn't got it wrong Mm. initially. But correcting is the one thing that Donald Trump and MAGA and cancel culture will never do. They just move on to the next lie. In relation to that, I wanted to ask you about how we can guard against, I suppose, the ossification of the constitution of knowledge or the the danger that um, this social system, which has a, a potentially authoritative role in terms of creating the circumstances in which disagreement can become truth or in which 
uh, facts can be tested and and challenged and so on. The danger that that exists that this constitution of knowledge itself could become a form of authority and not necessarily a form of authority that has uh, won that position justifiably. So just to give you an example, I'm going to throw at you one of the most controversial issues in public discussion at the moment, which is the issue of transgenderism. And this is a source of extraordinary cultural conflict in the UK in particular, but also in other parts of the Western world. Uh, and the reason it's the reason it's very interesting in the British context is because it is it is probably the issue around which cancellation is is most pronounced. So, if you look at, for example, the extraordinary abuse and threats that is that are aimed at someone like J.K. Rowling, or the fact that feminists have been no platformed from speaking on campuses because they are gender critical, and People have lost their jobs as a consequence of calling into question the idea that uh, one can change sex. So it's a it's a very live, difficult, controversial subject. And the reason I raise that in relation to the constitution of knowledge and the possible emergence of false forms of authority is if you look at social media, for example, which has ha- has had a rule that it will ban users who misgender someone. Or if you look at the way in which in universities, for example, it can be very difficult for academics and students to speak out about the immutable nature of sex and, and so on. So in, the, in that situation, we have elements of the constitution of knowledge of this social system having decided essentially that it is true that uh, gender fluidity is a real thing and that you can change sex and other people dispute that. So how do we ensure that well firstly what do you think about that issue if you don't if you're willing to say but also how do we ensure that the social system that is supposed to guarantee the discovery of truth in as free a way as possible doesn't establish truth on our behalf and then unwittingly punish and punish us for questioning it you frame the question in the right way which is as a two-part question one is about the substance of controversies about transgender uh, both rights and medicine and biology. Or you mm-hmm. could also say the substance of critical race theory or the substance of global climate change or gun control in the U.S. or any other similar issue. And and those are debates that are dealing with some empirically difficult and morally difficult questions. And the constitution of knowledge is the only way to organize and have those debates and and thrash out the wheat from the chaff and figure out what's true. And the constitution Mm -hmm. of knowledge is the answer there. It's not the problem because it requires us to behave in non-coercive ways. You use the the words abuse and threats of people who have been targeted in the UK. It's also happening in the US on transgender issue. Well, that's not the fault of the constitution of knowledge. That's illiberal abuse of the constitution of knowledge. It's people going against it. It's like saying, well, what's wrong with the US constitution? is that people attacked the Capitol on January 6th. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the Constitution's problem. That's the problem mm-hmm. with the people who are trying to overthrow it. So it's the illiberal tactics here. It's the coercion, the, the use of abuse and threats and intimidation in order to shut down the debate that needs to be had. Same is true of critical race theory. There are aspects of it I disagree with, as far as I understand. There are other aspects that I think are very important. But the key thing is to be able to have that discussion 
in a way that people are not afraid of losing their livelihood or their position in society if mm -hmm. they disagree with someone else's opinion. Unfortunately, in a lot of these debates, we have seen the use of, as I described earlier, powerful, sophisticated information warfare tactics to manipulate the environment. So it seems like only one point of view is, is true, is allowable, is even discussable. That's a form of manipulation. And that's what we need to guard against. To do that, um, another big theme of the book, the critical role of, of viewpoint diversity. Spiked has been a real warrior for this cause for many years, and I, I appreciate that and have learned from it. We can never see our own biases. There's all kinds of evidence that um, no matter how hard we try, we can't see our own biases. Only other people with other biases see them. And that's why whenever you get a culture where only one point of view on a subject is permissible and others can't be voiced, you'll see a culture that's making mistakes and floating off into ignorance and delusion and cultism. So in newsrooms and in academia, if you believe in the constitution of knowledge and in the advance of, of truth, then you need to welcome viewpoint diversity. And yeah, that's going to mean allowing some people like maybe Jordan Peterson, who question whatever is sort of the reigning orthodoxy in some circles about transgender or other subjects. The attitude should be, well, I may disagree with that, but let's hear what he has to say. Let's see the evidence. Let's talk about it. Then you can have that argument, but you've got to start with having enough diversity in the system so that you can learn. Absolutely. And that brings me very nicely onto, onto my final question, in fact, which is in relation to the role of viewpoint diversity, but also um, of contestation. And that's also something that you write about in the book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge. And I, I, one of the things I really like in the book is your 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 potted history of the development of some of these ideas from the Enlightenment onwards, and particularly the section on Locke, which I thought was very good. And you talk about the importance, uh, the development of this idea that criticism and contestation are really the only ways or the only sure ways in which we can push forward our understanding of the world, not just our scientific understanding of the world, but also our moral understanding, our moral knowledge, and the the necessity of those kinds of crashing together of alternative ways of thinking as a means of working out what might be true, what might be false, and how we might advance society scientifically, morally, socially. Um, so just to finish off, I wonder if you could just say something to our listeners about why you think contestation is so important, and maybe something about the the dangers of dogma, which is something that I often try to get across to, particularly to students when I speak on campus, I talk about the danger of life in the safe space and the danger of becoming dogmatic rather than opening oneself up to alternative ways of thinking. So how would you convince younger listeners in particular about the importance of allowing yourself to be confronted? Well, Mill was right. We always wind up going back to him sooner or later, don't we, when he said that <laughs> The man who knows only his own side of the argument knows not even that. Mm. Going back, it's a good, I suppose it's a good point to wrap up so much of what we said earlier. We have to understand ourselves, humans, as, as living in the dark, as living in Plato's cave. We err constantly. We're unable to see our errors. We're biased in systematic ways, not just random ways, so they don't come out in the wash. When we get together with other biased people, we just confirm our biases. It gets even worse. And we are fated, both individuals, individually and as a species, 
to live in ignorance and live in a state of warfare and oppression if we don't create a social environment which pushes us out of our comfort zones and says, wait a minute, it's not necessarily fun, though actually often it is fun, (laughs) but you're going to have to take your beliefs and other people's beliefs and state them in rational ways and then examine them and say, so what evidence can be brought to bear to support this or to debunk it? Mm. And then when you decide what to believe, you need to look at the results of all of that, not at what sounds good to you, not at what your friends are saying, not at what you see on Facebook, but what appears to be the best consensus coming out of this system of criticism and contestation. So it's two levels, right, Brendan? One level Mm. is the individual level. We need to have values according to the Constitution of Knowledge. We, we need to try to behave the way it tells us to behave, which is engage in this questioning process, in this public questioning process. Be rigorous. Don't shut down alternative points of view. Welcome them, especially if they're controversial and unpopular. So at the individual level, you alluded to courage, and that's where that comes in. The Founding Fathers said the same thing about the U.S. Constitution again and again. They all warned us. It's just words on paper. If people don't believe those words, take them to heart and behave according to them, voting carefully, getting educated, allowing yourself to lose an election and move on. If we don't do those things, if we don't believe those things, the Constitution will die. And the same is true of the Constitution of Knowledge. But also at the social level, individuals can't do this by ourselves. We need a social environment which is tuned to these values of creating knowledge, disconfirmation this vast global network of people looking for each other's errors. We need to understand the institutions that support that. And we need to keep those institutions on the ball. And that's academia. So where we see speech codes, dogmatism, silencing, where we see entire departments and disciplines, where there are essentially no one who's right of center, where we see newsrooms, where we see pressure campaigns by staff to silence certain points of view, fire the people who have them, where we see lack of viewpoint diversity in academia, in journalism, where we see coercion in employers, where people are forced or coerced to say things that they may not believe about race, for example. When we see all these things, these institutional problems, we need to get to work on them. We must not capitulate to them. We should say, okay, we we need to get these institutions right because the institutions create the environment that inflects how we behave and how we believe. Jonathan, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe, and in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.